The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium. Welcome and aboard. On December 22nd, 1895, Anna Bertha Ludwig looked at a photograph and exclaimed, I have seen my death. What had she seen? If you know the answer to that question, 514-790-0800, you can, of course, also text your questions and comments to 514-800. And the second question that we're going to start you off with today is about the origin of gin and tonic. Seems like a strange mixture. What originated it? Again, 514-790-0800 is the number to call. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate fact from fiction and uh, sense from nonsense. We also hope to keep you up to date on what happens in the world of science, steer you towards critical thinking, and steer you away from the clutches of charlatans, of whom, of course, there is a very large number uh, out there. Let me start out with a bit of a musical story. The musical Chicago, great show. I've seen it uh, on Broadway, and of course, there's also a movie uh, starring B.B. Newworth. It features a song, and the lyrics go like this. You can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there. You know what material they are referring to? Cellophane. The song is Mr. Cellophane and humorously describes the fear of being inconsequential. Therein lies an interesting story. Cellophane may be clear, almost invisible, but it certainly is not inconsequential. The name of this material derives from cellulose and the French word diaphane, meaning transparent. Cellophane, of course, is a transparent film that is used to wrap almost anything you want, and is also the essence of scotch tape. Like so many discoveries, it came about in an accidental fashion. According to the story, which may even be true, Swiss textile engineer Jacques Brandenberger was dining in a restaurant when a customer spilled some red wine on a tablecloth. As Brandenburger watched the waiter's desperate efforts to deal with the problem, he wondered if there were a way to coat tablecloths to make them resistant to stains. Because the waiter very quickly changed the tablecloth, which of course then had to be sent to the laundry, and uh, Brandenburger thought that this was not a unique event, and he, he worried about all of the cleaning that had to be done. While his mind flipped to a material called viscose, that the textile industry was already very interested in because of its potential to produce fibers. Viscose was made by treating raw cellulose with caustic soda and carbon disulfide. And uh, that produced a an, an thick orange gluey uh, syrup. And uh, that could be extruded through uh, what is known as a spinneret. Think of a shower. And you extrude this uh, thick liquid through the holes and when the solvent evaporates, you get fibers. 
And this was viscose. It was the first synthetic uh, fiber. Anyway, Brandenburger wondered if somehow this material could be used to cover fabric. He tried and tried with no success. The thin film of viscose he applied to cloth just kept peeling off. Not only did it peel off, but it did so as a flexible, transparent sheet. Now the scientist shifted focus and decided that the film itself could be useful. And indeed it was. He immediately thought of cellophane as a replacement for flammable celluloid in movie film, but cellophane distorted under heat, so it was unsuitable for this purpose. As a packaging material, though, it was great. The first customer was Coty, the French parfumeur, which used it to wrap perfume bottles. It was also used to wrap chocolates. But here a problem cropped up. Under moist conditions, cellophane became sticky. On the other hand, it was impermeable to poison gases. And in the First World War, it found extensive use as a lens in gas masks. The moisture problem was solved in the 1920s by William Hale Charch, a chemist working for DuPont who had bought the rights to cellophane. He found that a thin coating of nitrocellulose made cellophane waterproof. This was just what the makers of Camel cigarettes needed. They hatched an advertising scheme promoting the fact that they were now packaging the cigarettes in humidor. Cellophane, of course, is still with us. An American poll in 1940 searched for the most beautiful word in the English language. Cellophane placed third behind mother and memory. So there you get the interesting story of, of cellophane. And uh, today it is very commonly used to, to wrap gift items. Uh, and uh, it has this lustry appearance. So when you wrap some chocolates or some flowers in cellophane, it gives it this, this sort of expensive uh, look. And it all came about from uh, an accidental discovery. And uh, accidental discoveries, of course, are not uh, all that rare. The question is whether or not anything actually uh, it can be made from them. And uh, in some cases, of course, accidental discoveries have had uh, absolutely monumental impacts. Uh, I refer you, for example, to uh, Charles Goodyear and that classic story, which is pretty well documented and, and uh, is uh, probably true just the way that, that often tell it. And that takes back to the uh, takes us back to the middle of the 19th century. Rubber, of course, was already known for a long time. Rubber is a natural material exudate of of the rubber tree, uh, but uh, it isn't uh, all that elastic. And uh, another problem with uh, natural rubber is that uh, it uh, gets very solid when the weather is cold, and it gets very soft and melts when the weather is 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 warm. And Charles Goodyear was dedicated to improving the qualities of rubber. But how was he going to do this? He figured that maybe mixing it with some different materials might change its properties. And he tried all kinds of things. Believe it or not, he tried soup. He tried cream cheese. He kept trying, and he ran out of money. At one point, he even sold his children's school books to get more money to do his research. Well, one day, 
he was mixing uh, his uh, rubber with some sulfur, hoping to get somewhere, but nothing was happening. Then he accidentally spilled this mixture onto a hot stove. And when the mixture hit the hot stove, it solidified into an elastic mass. He, of course, didn't recognize the chemistry that was going on. Today, we understand. Sulfur atoms linked together the chains that make up um, rubber. <clears throat> the rubber is made of a polymer, uh, which means a long, long molecule called polyisoprene. And these long chains were joined together by uh, sulfur atoms. And that made the substance much more resilient, much more elastic. And uh, he started a business. He patented this. In 1851, he... Um, had a huge exhibit in London at the Crystal Palace International Fair. And he showed that rubber could be used to make pontoons, could be used to make shoes, could be used even to make furniture. And uh, Goodyear, of course, became famous as the inventor of the vulcanized rubber, rubber process, uh, the name coming from Vulcan, which was the Roman god of fire, because the vulcanization process required heat. <clears throat> today, it is still an extremely important process, but of course, today there are all kinds of rubbers that can be manufactured synthetically, and uh, they have, in many cases, replaced uh, natural uh, rubber. Uh, a lot of these discoveries date back to the Second World War, when natural rubber became very scarce because uh, Europe and America was cut off uh, from their rubber supplies in, in South America and in, in Malaysia. So they had to come up with synthetic processes and, uh, and they did. The Germans did, the, the Americans did, and today we have lots of uh, synthetic rubber, but uh, it's interesting to reflect on the accidental discovery by Charles Goodyear. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Hey, people, you got to get your thinking caps on. I don't have any text answers yet to my two questions. First one was on December 22, 1895, Anna Bertha Ludwig looked at a photograph and exclaimed, I have seen my death. What had she seen? The other question is, what is the origin of gin and tonic? A rather curious blend of two liquids. Where did it originate? If you know, you can give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text your answer or any other query that you may have to 514-800. In uh, yesterday's Gazette, I I wrote a column about superfoods, which has generated some uh, interest. I was exploring the origin of the term superfood. I think we all have kind of a feeling for what it means. Uh, It is the suggestion that uh, whatever food is being talked about is particularly healthy. That is is beyond just having the the ordinary nutrients in it. 
And uh, there are many foods, of course, that have been hyped as, as superfoods, uh, uh, mostly in the fruit and vegetable category, or sometimes a juice of, of some kind or, or some herbal supplement. There is no legal definition of the word superfood. And uh, it is being used in, in a sort of a, a random uh, fashion. But the question is, who first coined this expression? It isn't so easy to track this down. If you uh, start a, a search, very often you end up sometime in the in 1920s with the suggestion that banana was first marketed as a, a superfood. Well, there is an interesting story therein, and uh, it, it takes us back to an actual scientific publication by a doctor named mm. Sidney, Sidney Haas, who, uh, who found that children who suffered from celiac disease, which is a disease where the body can't handle gluten, the protein that is found in, in, in wheat, and uh, he discovered that uh, if children had a diet that featured most of bananas, they did not suffer from the, uh, the problem of uh, gluten intolerance, obviously, because bananas don't contain any gluten. But at that time, it wasn't known what celiac disease was all about. So anyway, there was a, a publication in a scientific journal by Sidney Haas about the wonders of banana in treating uh, celiac disease. And uh, this was uh, picked up by the New York Times, and uh, there was an article published with the headline, Bananas Help Ill Child, that talked about the wonders of, of the banana. And uh, the banana industry, of course, loved this, and they began advertising uh, bananas as a particularly healthy food, but they never used the term superfood. So we, we can't say that that term originated there. The concept perhaps did originate there of, of some food having some sort of, of special value. But as far as I can tell, the first actual use uh, on any kind of wide scale of this term superfood was by British osteopath and naturopath Michael Van Straten. Although there is, uh, again, when you start searching and you, know, you start Googling, yeah, you get some reference to an article that supposedly was published in Alberta in the Lethbridge Herald in 1949 that described a certain muffin as a superfood that contains all known vitamins and some that had not been discovered. Maybe, I don't know. I, the, the, that article cannot be found. Uh, so it may or may not uh, exist. But certainly in 1990, Van Straten published a book called Superfoods, in which he ascribes therapeutic properties to various kinds of foods, apples, broccoli, onions, nuts, avocados, and, and many, many others. He then followed up this, this book with a number of others. There was super juice and super soups and super fast foods and, and super boosters and super herbs. And if, if you don't eat all of these superfoods, then he had another book for you. It was called Super Detox. Well, of course, detox has no real meaning in that context uh, either. So that was the first uh, uh, time that I, I can trace back to where the actual term superfood was, was used. But how did it then become so popular and why did Van Straten uh, actually become very famous? 
and he still is in in England. He's got a radio show. He's he's written columns, books, etc. And that really started when he hit uh, in the 1960s on a Swiss health tonic by the name of Biostrath. And this had been invented by German chemist, Dr. Walter Strathmeyer. And uh, Van Straten began to recommend this to his patients in the 1960s. And uh, he got very good reports about how he increased their energy, they felt better, etc. And then as luck would have it, Barbara Cartland, who was by that time extremely well known, she was a super famous writer of romance novels and eventually published 723 books, sold over a million copies of, of her books. Very, very well known, not only in England, but around the world. And she didn't have any scientific education, but she had ventured into the area of, of nutrition and she took numerous supplements, including, uh, as she herself reports, a hundred dietary supplements a day. And uh, she even recommended some of these to Margaret Thatcher, whether she took them or not is, is not known. But anyway, uh, when her husband died, Barbara Cartland's husband, she was very depressed and she wrote an article about that. And Van Straten saw this article and he recommended that she take Biostrath and sent her uh, a couple of bottles of this and they became good friends. They even opened up an organic health food store, the first ever in, in England. And when uh, Barbara Cartland was asked to be a guest on a radio program about food, and there would also be five university professors as guests, she was kind of worried. And she said that she would only agree to be on the show if Van Straten could come along. And he must have done a good job because he was soon offered a regular show and uh, he continued that for, uh, for many, many years. So that's how this whole business of superfoods started. And then, of course, many others uh, jumped on that uh, bandwagon and began uh, touting things like goji berries and noni juice and chia seeds. Kale, of course, is, is a, a darling of the superfood people. Quinoa, uh, spirulina, green tea, seaweed, and even garlic. Well, garlic may have been the original superfood. Because when we go back to about 2000 BC, the Chinese deemed it to be a digestive aid. And the ancient Greeks used garlic to energize soldiers in battle. And uh, the early Olympians supposedly took garlic to enhance their performance. There are also stories about uh, Egyptian pharaohs providing garlic to the builders of the pyramids who, by the way, were not slaves. Uh, they were workers who were paid for working on the pyramids. And uh, many of them did this uh, quite happily because they thought that they were contributing to the godliness of the, of the Pharaoh. Anyway, uh, the famous Ebers papyrus that dates back to about 1500 BC also had a recipe for a superfood. And that was half an onion and the froth of beer as, quote, a delightful remedy against death. Well, it didn't really work since we don't have any ancient Egyptians trotting around today. Uh, they have all passed away. So anyway, that's the story of, of superfoods, which of course is a marketing term, but a very effective marketing term. 
but it is really unrealistic to describe any single food as being super. You can talk about good diets and poor diets. And of course, good diets are made up of many foods that have been labeled as super in the category of fruits and vegetables. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Okay, I understand there were a few problems with uh, answering the phone in the studio, but I think everything is okay now, and we have George on the line. George. I'm not sure if, I'm not confident about my answer, but I'll still hazard a guess, and it's okay. based on ha having viewed a documentary on Tele-Québec about the 1918 influenza pandemic in which public health care authorities tried to uh, concoct tonics to help uh, patients suffering from their infections, and uh, some countries would add uh, whiskey or gin to, I don't know if it was tonic water, to... Um, to help these uh, these individuals? No, there were many concoctions that were uh, put forth uh, for the Spanish flu, but uh, that's not the origin of uh, gin and tonic. It, uh, it actually is earlier than that. Excuse me if I may All right, ask let's, uh, you two, yeah, quick, sure. two quick questions, please. Sure. Uh, and, and before those, I'd like to uh, extend my appreciation of uh, with all that you do, uh, particularly, I mean, it all originated in a course in Sejap with yourself and uh, Dr. Ariel Fenster. The two questions I have are, one, um, cocoa processed with alkali, what mm -hmm. that um, entails, and the second one is where caramel coloring actually comes from. Okay. The uh, the processing of cocoa with uh, with lye, which is sodium hydroxide, is known as the dutching process, and the reason that it is done is to take away some of the bitter tasting components of cocoa. Uh, there is no risk with this whatsoever. It's a it's a time tested uh, process, and it just makes uh, chocolate and cocoa less bitter. It's known as dutching, and uh, it has been done for oh, over a hundred years. The uh, caramel is uh, essentially melted sugar. So you take sugar, heat it up, it melts, and you get caramel. Simple as that. <laughs> Thank you. It's as simple as that. Okay. All right. Let's go to Reed, who's on the line. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hi. Okay. I'm going to hazard a guess. Now, I've, I don't uh, don't prompt myself by any kind of research because otherwise, what's the point of playing this this uh, you know, mind uh, enhancing um, procedure? Right. In terms of the uh, the tonic gin and tonic, uh, would that be? I'm just hazarding a guess related to the use or the addition of quinine as an anti-malarial. Uh, yes. Uh, that is exactly correct, and that originated in India with uh, the British Army. And uh, malaria, uh, malaria, of course, was rampant in India uh, at the time. It's a mosquito-borne disease, of course, and uh, quinine was long known as a treatment for uh, malaria. Quinine is extracted from bark of the cinchona tree, grows in Peru, 
And uh, it was believed that it might also be uh, prophylactic for malaria, which it can work because it uh, destroys the parasite that causes uh, malaria. But it yeah. tastes extremely bit, very, very bitter. So they, uh, in order to make the medicine go down, uh, they added some sugar, which of course is a classic. And uh, also to make the subjects happier, they mixed it with gin. Uh, in true British, the, or, true British fashion. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the origin of gin and tonic. And of course, it is still consumed today. But the amount of uh, quinine that is present in tonic water today is, is very little. I mean, it is enough to give it a slightly bitter taste. But... Do not count on it for treating or preventing malaria. <laughs> okay. Very good. Okay. Thanks a million. Thanks very much. All right. I think we also have Mike on the line. Mike. Mike. All right. Well, we won't wait for, for Mike, but I did get an answer to my other question. And that was about... Uh, that specific date, December 22, 1895, when Anna Bertha Ludwig looked at a photograph and exclaimed, I have seen my death. What had she seen? The first x-ray, a photograph of her hand wearing a ring. And that was taken by her husband, who of course was Wilhelm Röntgen, who in 1901 would receive the first ever Nobel Prize in physics for this discovery. And uh, this, uh, of course, was a huge discovery. I mean, it basically changed medical practice. Uh, where would we be without uh, x-rays? Now, he, of course, uh, was not intending to come up with a medical procedure. Again, this was a very interesting uh, accidental discovery. Röntgen was actually studying cathode rays. Uh, a cathode tube is an evacuated tube that has two electrodes at the two ends. And when you attach uh, uh, leads from and pass an electric current through, through the uh, uh, electrodes, uh, you get a glow in the tube. But Röntgen also found that even when this tube was covered with some black paper, it still caused a surface uh, that was covered with luminous paint to, to glow. And this really what started the whole idea of, uh, of x-rays. And they were called x-rays because they mysteriously passed through uh, matter. And when you look at that photograph, which of course is very easy to find on, online, you will see the hand of uh, Mrs. Röntgen and you can very clearly see the ring on it. Because of course the ring and the bones block the passage of the x-rays. So the photographic film that is put below the hand is only hit it, and it is blocked by the bones and the rings, so that comes out as a black uh, image. And uh, indeed, uh, Röntgen was, of course, very, very deserving of that uh, Nobel Prize. And 1901 was the first year that those prizes were awarded, and uh, obviously uh, this was a, a major feather in uh, his cap. All right, so now we have had both of those uh, uh, questions uh, answered. So let me pose you another one. And again, let me go with a quote here as well. Who said, you push the button and we do the rest? If you know the answer to that one, 514-790-0800, or you can, of course, always text to 514-800. 
And uh, let me pose another one to you. What chemical links cell phones, compact discs, and astronauts' helmets? What does that? You know that the University of North Carolina's athletic teams are known as the Tar Heels. And of course, the question comes up, why should this be? What, what does that expression mean? Well, in the early decades of the 20th century, North Carolina was home to the pine tree industry. It was not the wood that was important, but the thick, sticky resin that oozed from the trees when tapped. The workers who collected the resin were often barefoot, and their heels were marked by the tar that fell to the ground. Pine trees can be trapped just like maple trees, though the gummy residue that emerges is not used as a food source. But it does have various commercial applications. When the resin is distilled, a liquid can be collected. You know what we call that liquid? That's turpentine. And it serves as an excellent solvent for oil paints. The residue that is left after distillation is known as pitch and was commonly used as caulking to waterproof wooden ships. Turpentine itself is composed of compounds called terpenes, which have a scent often described as clean. Two of the chief components are alpha-pinene and beta-pinene, which serve as raw materials for various chemical syntheses. Camphor used in rubs, as well as geraniol used to make rose scent, can be produced from these uh, pinenes. Now, just getting back for a moment to the, the pitch, that is this gummy residue that is left over after the turpentine has been distilled, uh, that is even mentioned in the Bible because Noah supposedly waterproofed the ark by using pitch. Because, of course, when you build an ark out of wood, uh, especially, I mean, in those days, you, can, you can't make the, the wooden pieces mesh together perfectly. So you have to put something in between to prevent water from seeping through. And that was uh, pitch. Pitch is a, a material that is referred to as a plastic because it can be molded. When you warm it up, it becomes soft. You can pour it into a mold and it hardens. It's a plastic material. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. I had a text question uh, referring to quinine and about whether or not it's true that it can be effective for leg cramps. It's sort of a yes and no answer to that one. There is some evidence that quinine can have some value in, in reducing leg cramps, but at a dose that is high enough to be considered potentially dangerous, the amount of quinine that is uh, used in tonic water is not going to do anything. And uh, it's a much higher dose, two to 300 milligrams, that, that uh, may have an effect. 
but at those kind of doses, uh, quinine can be quite toxic. And so generally, this is not a medication that is uh, recommended for using uh, for uh, leg cramps. I, I did have an answer about uh, the question that I, I posed about who said, you push the button, we do the rest. And the answer was a MANA radar range microwave oven. No, that is not correct. It is not the microwave oven. Uh, so we still have that outstanding. You push the button, we do the rest. Who said that? And is a pretty famous person and uh, who founded a very famous company uh, who uttered uh, that particular phrase. Napoleon. Very interesting character, of course, and we've spoken about Napoleon in, in some context before. But uh, he uttered a very interesting phrase, uh, sent a message to Josephine before he would come home. And the message was, don't wash, I'm coming home. And he sent this when he was about to return from one of his uh, escapades. Well, it seems strange that the little emperor would be turned on by the scent of his lover's armpit, but uh, that it sees it seems to really have been the case. Well, interestingly enough, armpit fragrance has been scientifically examined, uh, most notably by Dr. George Pretty of the Monell Chemical Census uh, Center in Philadelphia. We spoke to him about this uh, years ago. And he had a number of male volunteers wear absorbent pads under their arms and then analyze the contents. And he was able to isolate some 40 compounds but one in particular turned out to be responsible for sweaty armpit smell. If you don't want to know what that is, it is 3-methyl-2-hexanoic acid, which apparently forms when bacteria attack a protein that's released by the sweat glands. Why Napoleon would have been attracted by this smell is a mystery, although other components of underarm secretions have been linked with aphrodisiac effects. And rostenone, which is the uh, stuff that uh, is found in, in many uh, of these products that is sold online as a supposed uh, aphrodisiac. It has no fragrance, but uh, it is known to be the sex attractant of the wild boar and of pigs. It's just not known to have any effect on humans. So they are really extrapolating from this you know, animal adventure uh, to humans. But, uh, you know, there, there are some interesting studies that have been tried, al although they have been criticized for not being done very vigorous, rigorously. In one widely quoted study, seats in a theater were sprayed with this compound, and uh, they were more likely to be occupied than other seats. But that study has never been reproduced. So uh, maybe there is something to this uh, armpit fragrance, but... Uh, I don't think there's much. I think avoiding armpit fragrance is more likely to get you a romantic uh, interlude. All right, I'm still looking for the answer to my uh, question about who uttered the phrase, you push the button and we do the rest. And also I was asking about the chemical that links cell phones, compact discs, and uh, astronaut helmets. And uh, we do now have a an answer to the question, and that was George Eastman, the founder of Kodak, and indeed he is the one who uttered 
the phrase, you push the button, we do the rest. Uh, George Eastman introduced roll film in 1884. I mean, before that, uh, photography used uh, glass plates, which were coated with uh, uh, various silver salts that are sensitive to, to light. It was quite an elaborate process uh, to develop those, uh, those plates. And uh, he introduced uh, film, which was uh, based on uh, uh, celluloid. Celluloid was a mixture, uh, was cellulose nitrate that was uh, mixed with camphor, celluloid, and that could be extruded into a thin film. And uh, he found a way to coat the uh, light-sensitive material onto this, uh, this film. And he introduced the Kodak camera. Incidentally, the name Kodak was his invention. It's not a it's not a an acronym for anything. It's not the name of anything. He just came up with it because it sounded good. He created the the word. And uh, in uh, 1888, he introduced the Kodak camera, and uh, it was preloaded with film that could take a hundred exposures on a roll. And then the whole camera would be sent in to the company and uh, the film would be developed and sent back to the customer. And uh, this really was in the early days of, of photography, but it was really the first time that the average person could avail themselves uh, of this process. And uh, so his fame really uh, came from developing flexible film. And Thomas Edison, is the one who adapted the film for use in the motion picture uh, industry. And of course, the early days of the motion picture industry were known as the celluloid era because uh, the flexible film was made of, uh, of celluloid. Uh, Eastman uh, made a lot of money. He donated over his lifetime $100 million through his various philanthropic ventures. He was one of America's greatest philanthropists. I mean, $100 million back in, in those days, late 1800s, early 1900s, was a tremendous amount of money. Uh, most of it went to the Ro Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, he lived in Rochester, which of course was also where Kodak was founded. So he gave money there and he gave money also to MIT. And he also donated significantly to the dentistry and medical faculty at the University of Rochester and he also gave a lot to black universities. So he was really, really a, a very, very good man. And uh, although he obviously did make a lot of money, but he used it uh, very well. There's another interesting story about Eastman and Leo Bakeland. Leo Bakeland was the chemist who came up with Bakelite, which was the world's first synthetic plastic, came up with that in 1906. And uh, before coming up with uh, uh, Bakelite, he also had been playing around with photographic materials. And he came up with a paper that he called Velox paper, uh, which was paper that had been sensitized with light-sensitive film. And uh, he thought that uh, Eastman would be interested in this, and he wanted to sell it to Eastman. And he made up his mind that he would not take a penny less than $25,000 and that uh, you know he would not negotiate, he would not take anything less than that. And Eastman agreed to see him and he went in and he was all nervous because he was going to ask for this uh, lot of money. 
he had sent the samples of this paper to Eastman before. And he went into Eastman's office and he sat down. And before saying anything, George Eastman welcomed him and he said, uh, uh, Mr. Bakeland, uh, uh, would you take $750,000 for your Velox paper? And Bakeland was absolutely just, you know, astounded by this amount of, of money. Uh, obviously, he uh, agreed to take it and he could uh, then retire, which he did. And he devoted the rest of his life to coming up with interesting chemicals. And uh, this is how he came up with uh, Bakelite, a phenol formaldehyde resin, uh, which of course revolutionized uh, the world because you could make all kinds of substances from, from this uh, resin. And some of the early uh, radios and television sets and telephones were made of Bakelite and it still is a collectible material. So that is it for today. We have uh, run out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>